Um, for this shiur, for first of two parts, on a topic that we uh, are playing with right now in the Dapim that we're studying these days, which is the topic of Brera. And even though Brera, um, as we are familiar with it, is a uh, is a topic that that impacts throughout Shas, and there's sugiot all over the place of it, the main sugiot really is right here in Gitin. And so what we're going to do today, the purpose of today's shiur, is going to be more methodology. How to study a sugya. Uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna make our way through the same way that we do in the morning, except slower and pointing out along the way things that we need to be aware of in order to fully grasp the sugya. Uh, along the way, we're going to see something most curious about the Yerushalmi. Uh, and um, and then we're going to take a look at some kitbeyat at the end, really just kind of for fun, uh, to get a sense of uh, of a different way of looking at the sugya, perhaps. What we'll do in Hashem next week, and again next week it's going to be a little bit earlier as for the email, uh, is we're going to look at some of the deeper issues of Brera, uh and be looking at some of the Rishonim. We're going to look at a Ramban. We're going to look at a couple of Rashis in different places of Shas. Uh, to get more of the conceptual framework of Brera. So it'll be a two-part shiur, uh, and the first part, again, is going to be more of the methodolo methodology of study. So though, so it's this the first one is going to be very pedagogic in that sense of showing how to study, as it were. All right, we'll start from the beginning. The beginning is the uh, is the Mishnah in the third parak of Gitin, uh, which uh, we've already studied and moved on to the next Mishnah, a couple a couple Mishnayot already, uh, but this is really where it gets started. And the Mishnah says the following. Um, and as soon as we finish the Mishnah, I'll point out some methodological issues about the study of Mishnah, which we are often um, we which we often overlook. That's the topic statement. Any get written not for the intent or the name of a woman is pasul. Now, if you read that statement alone. You, it might appear that it just is invalidating writing a bunch of gittin for Rachel, knowing that there's somebody out there named Rachel who you might need to get. In other words, it has to be written for a particular person, but not necessarily, by the way, for the person who's going to get the get. In other words, that statement alone doesn't take us all the way home. All right? And so the statement being open-ended enough allows the Mishnah to then give us Four scaffolded examples that make the demand for lishma um, more intense, and we'll go in, in in the Gemara. We're going to go into the textual basis for this demand of lishma. But again, the word lishma means written for the intent of this woman. Hayya <clears throat> The person's walking in the marketplace and he hears sofrim. Now, what are sofrim? Scribes. Good. We think so. It may not only mean scribes. But right now we'll read scribes, but we'll see that there may, may be an alternate meaning. Makrim. Now, the word lahakri means to dictate. Likro means to read. And likro, in this case, would mean to read out loud. But makrim means they're dictating. And the quote is, Ish ploni megareshet ploni mi makom ploni. So Chaim is divorcing Susie in Brentwood. 
right? Now, the wording of this is a little bit awkward, and it really should be, ish ploni mimakom ploni megareshet ploni. In other words, the, the, the location is really dependent to where they live, not where she happened to come from. But we're not concerned with that. Chaim is divorcing Susie. Chaim from Brentwood is divorcing Susie. Okay. The Amar. And now Chaim is walking past, and he goes in and he says, Zeshmi v'zeshem ishti. Hey, I'm Chaim, and my wife is Susie, and I want a divorce. Pasul mi He can't use that, that star for divorce. Now, before we go further, based on the topic sentence, what would be the reason here? It what? wasn't written. It oh. wasn't written for her. It wasn't written for Susie, right? For meaning his That's Susie. Susie. Of course, we know it's Susie Q. So he he. It was not written for Susie Q, and therefore it's no good. Which, by the way, should be the end of the issue. The Mishnah instead scaffolds and says Yater Mikain, which means that in further than that, even more uh, intense than that, or less obvious than that, Katav Mach. So let's say Chaim from Brentwood wrote a get for Susie, and he changed his mind. Mitzaob ben Iro, another guy from Brentwood, found him. I'm also Chaim. My wife's also Susie, and I am interested in getting divorced. And he can't use that get to divorce her. Now, why not? Again, based on the opening line of the Mishnah, why not? It was written to divorce a Susie from in Brentwood from Chaim. What's the problem? It's Why different? No good. Different. Well, she's not the Susie that he had in mind. Okay, good. So then you have to wonder what's the purpose of the next clause. I'm with you, Sherwin. It's because it's not Susie Q. No. Right. Good. So you'll tell me, Ken. Chaim is married to Susie Q and Susie not Q. Right? He decided now Susie Q is not her name. We're just referring to her because of in honor of Credence Clearwater. But <laughs> he wrote Chaim is going to divorce Susie, intending Susie not Q. He can't use it for Susie Q. Q her being Tana. Now why not? Why why is the third get not work? His kavana was for someone else. So that's not, it's not the uh, not not, the, not that wife, not that woman. Okay, good. So then I'm going to contend that clause number two is unnecessary here. In other words, it could have gone straight from clause one to clause three. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. So what's the purpose of clause two? What does it add? Why is it why is it a necessary step in our process? And I want to deal with this now because step four is, is where we want to get to, and that's where we're going to take off from. So before getting to there, why is step two a necessary uh, stage two a necessary stage to, to mention? Stage two, he's there's an issue of his changing his mind. When stage three, he didn't change his mind; it's just a misrepresentation of the person. Well, in stage three, he did change his mind about which Susie he's going to divorce. Oh, oh, oh understand. Right? In stage two, he changed his mind about divorcing his wife, he's got one wife, and somebody else happened to have the same set of names who was saying it doesn't work. So how is how is stage two different than stage three? So let's think about it. Unlike Kiddushin, which we celebrate and enjoy, and et cetera, 
where both parties are actively involved in consent, Gitted is an imbalanced relationship. Where is the focus in the get as far as intent, etc.? The husband has to intend to divorce the wife. Exactly. So I understand why clause two is invalid, because in clause two, Chaim, who's going to end up divorcing Susie, did not commission the get. And therefore, the get, it doesn't belong to Chaim. But I have every reason to think that as long as Chaim commissioned the get and the names are right, I shouldn't care which wife he's divorcing. Because it, at the end of the process, her identity isn't important, her, her consent isn't important. So if you think about it, stage three is a far more innovative statement and far more extravagant statement than, than stage two. Stage two almost walks itself through. Since the husband has to give it intentionally, you know, the famous sugya that we're all aware of, maybe not as a sugya, but of the forced get. You're all aware of the forced get, right? And something that, we, that we've tried to do in some cases of aguna, to force the guy, put him in jail, whip him, whatever it is, till he gives the get. The cruncher in that sugya is all about intent. So that the Mishnah says, you, you whip him until he says, I want to do it. Which means, of course, he doesn't really want to do it, but he's saying, I want to do it, right? But it's all about his intent. But stage three here is odd. What do I care if he wrote it for Susie A or Susie B? He wrote it, get divorced his wife. Her, her personality, and it's not, not an issue. Her persona is not an issue. So it's still invalid, and the Gemara will tell us why. And the kicker for us is case four. Yotermikin. Amar Lavlar. So he told the scribe, Tov Again, he's got two Susies. But instead of saying, write it, and he had intent Susie A, and later changed his mind for Susie B, it doesn't work. Now he's saying, leave it open-ended. Just write Susie. I'm not sure which one I want to divorce. Whichever <laughs> makes the worst dessert tonight, I'll, you know, whatever, right? He can't use it. Now, why is source, why is case four less in, intuitive than, than case three? Because remember, Yatermikain, that phrase, or Yotermikain, which that phrase which introduces cases two, three, and four, suggests that each of these cases is less intuitive than the first. And and that's why well we in four in four he had he had intent to at least divorce one of them. Did he? In in okay, so let's go back to case three then. In case three, what was his intent? He picked one there. One of his two wives, and then he changed his mind to the other wife. Right. So how's that different than case four? He didn't pick one. He didn't pick one, which means what would he have in mind when he was writing the when he was commissioning the get in the morning? An, op, an open-ended option, basically. Right. And we're saying the op, open-ended option doesn't work. All right, and we have to figure out why. Okay, so that's the Mishnah. Well, the reason, well, in, yeah. modern, in modern terms, you, in modern terms, you could say he was downsizing. Well, yes, but but again, that's the way we kind of jokingly refer to this obviously very unusual and tragic case. But, you know, he's got too many Susies in the house, right? I, I get it. But, again, why why does it not work? And so then, again, you could turn around and ask the following. 
Why doesn't the Mishnah just give us case four and then case three, two, and one become obvious? You see my point? Because we, we always ask this question, why do you need to make multiple statements expressing the same thing? And the answer is tzricha, because from statement one, I couldn't extrapolate statement two, etc. And then when the statements are not of parallel import, but are of scaffolded import, where one is less obvious than the next, then the immediate reaction is, so tell me the least obvious case, and everything else flows from there. So if you gave me the last case, can I figure out the rest? Dalit, you mean? What? Dalit. Yeah. Fourth. Yeah. If I had the Dalit, if I had the fourth case, and you told me, forget about your term, can. I'm going to reread the Mishnah. Get ready. I'm going to do a Reader's Digest on this thing. Call get you ready? I did a little editing there. All right? So now, we could have had the topic sentence, which is the rule, any get written not for a particular woman is pasul. And then the example would be a guy with two wives of the same name, and he says to the lavlar, write it open-ended, and I'll later decide who it is. It's pasul. Doesn't that give us the other three cases? Or maybe not. Okay, so think of I, I would say it would, but uh, there's something I'm wrong. I know. <laughs> no, 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 you're not really wrong. And the Gemara will doesn't do it here. The Gemara does not ask this question here. But sometimes the Gemara will ask the question, you know, why why teach it? And why not just pick, go for the, the jugular, go for the last case, and then everything else flows from there? And then it will often present and say, meaning the Mishnah is deliberately saying case one, and not only case one, but even case two. But that's usually a fallback position when we can't really justify case one. And here it's case one, two, and three. So I want to sensitize you to that because my purpose in today's year is really the pedagogy of how to read Mishnah and how to read Gemara. And so when we're reading, we have to be sensitive to that issue. The Mishnah is trying to teach a principle. And it's giving four examples of the principle. And the, and the, and the examples are explicitly um, intensified as we move along. Because the words Yotermikan tell me not only that, but here's even something that's less intuitive that still follows that rule. Right? So we have to be sensitive to that. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because... Something that way, way back, and you're going to see an example of this in, soon in this year, was a staple of the way we learn. And then in many um, scholastic environments, sort of became, I wouldn't say lost, but became sort of buried. And it was sort of revived really in the 19th century. Was the notion of studying a Mishnah qua Mishnah meaning studying a Mishnah in its own terms and not seeing it through the eyes of the Gemara necessarily. It's something that the Vilna Golan spoke about when he talked about the Mishnah itself having Pshat and Drash. I know it's an odd phrase to use, because when we use Pshat and Drash, we think about that in terms of Tanakh. But the Vilna Golan said, you know, the Mishnayot have Pshat and Drash, meaning the Mishnah is the Mishnah as the Mishnah, and then there is the Gemara's dealing with it, which is not necessarily the only way to look at it. And the best proof for that is 
that in the Gemara you'll have two, three, or four various approaches to the Mishnah, and that's not even talking about the Yerushalmi or the Tosefta. And we're going to see all of that today. Um, and so, therefore, he recommends, and many since then have done studies in this, study the Mishnah and see what the Mishnah says on its own. And then, of course, you have to learn the Gemara, because that's part of the development of the halachic process. The Mishnah stands by itself. So we've looked at the Mishnah and asked some of the questions. And by the way, you don't need to come to a resolution necessarily, but having the questions in mind then informs the Gemara, which means people will often read the Mishnah, then they'll read the Gemara, and they won't stop and ask about the Mishnah, because they'll say, oh, the Gemara is going to explain it. Okay, but let's try to figure it out on its own. Now, when I say that the original, way, way back, that's how it was done, that's exactly how it was done. A Mishnah was composed somewhere in the first couple centuries of the Common Era. It was then uh, winnowed out from other Brightot. It was uh, enhanced, perhaps. We have Mishnah Rishonah, Mishnah Chrona, till we get to its fi final form somewhere in the third century, early third century. Rabbi Yunanasi and his Beit Midrash. And then we have a Mishnah. Now, what was done with that Mishnah? That Mishnah was then taught and repeated in all the Bate Midrash and was studied as a Mishnah. What we have is hundreds of years of discussions about that Mishnah enfolded on each other, which part of what we're going to do today is try to pull them apart a little bit, and a final resolution about perhaps the mainstream approach to understanding the Mishnah in the Bavli. And so often we'll look at the Mishnah through those eyes. It's somewhat akin to the challenge that I face every year as a high school Tanakh teacher, and not just high school, but adult Tanakh teacher, of having people come in and open up a parasha, and they are immediately guided in reading that story based on typically Rashi. Right. So, for instance, I just taught my students uh, at the end of the year uh, about Yaakov and his wrestling match. And some of the students for me, they said, yeah, it was a malach, it was Asa, Sarushal Asa. I said, okay, that's Rashi, and now let me show you what other Mepharshim have to say about it. And let's see some other ways to look at it. And they're surprised. And so that kind of pulling away so that we look at each, each text independently allows us to then come back to the Gemara and see it with fresh eyes, which is critical. Okay. And again, these are stuff, these are things we don't have the luxury of talking about uh, in the morning when, uh, you know, it's two minutes to seven and, and they're about to push us out so they can say Kaddish. Okay. So now let's take a look at the beginning of the Gemara. And see how our Gemara deals with it. So, Katav the Gareshis Tovanim Lach, right? And those words again were put in by the printer just to let us know what's being discussed. Ve'ela Resha Bemai. Now, by the way, I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask these. I'm gonna I'm gonna get very almost pedantic about this here because I really want us to focus on how we learn the words Ve'ela Resha Bemai. Who's saying those words? Yeah. Students in the base measures in different generations. Okay, so this is what we refer to as the Stamaim, which means those rabbis in Bavel, after the period of the named Amoraim, so we're talking about late 5th or early 6th century, are in the Bidrash, and they ask the question, No, there's no names there. How do we not know that it's not Rabbi Yudah Nasi? Rabbi Yudah Nasi is way gone, because Rabbi Yudah Nasi is, is the compiler of the Mishnah, as it were. Right, and maybe this is his comment. But, oh, good, because then, first of all, we would have it named, we would have it associated with him, and Rabbi Yudanasi would not ask a question about his own composition. 
Now, it's a good question you ask, and I think it's a great point of departure. Rabbi Yudon Nasi is not going to ask a question about his own composition or his own editing job and say, okay, what's the ratio talking about? This is a late question. And it's a late question because, again, like anything else, and here I highly recommend reading Moish Kapel's Meta Halakha. It's a very a small book. I don't know if it's available. Ask me. I'll see if I can get you a copy. Um, on how distance from original sources necessitates more information. But he, he brings countless examples from the Gemara about this. Beautiful. And so here what you have is when the Mishnah is originally taught, everybody kind of understands what's going on. And over time, because of time and distance and changing circumstances, etc., then there becomes a loss of an intuitive sense of the Mishnah, and there's a need to formalize it. And that's what this is, Vela Reisha Bemai. There's a late question coming in saying, okay, what's the Reisha talking about? All right, and you'll see, Amarav Papa, so Papa isn't answering the question. I'll explain what I mean. It's exactly what you guys said. The Reisha, the first case, the guy's walking on the shuk and he overhears da da da, is talking about scribes who are practicing. Practicing their calligraphy. Now, how do we put this together? What happened is Rav Papa made a comment on the Mishnah. He said the Mishnah, opening line of the Mishnah is talking about Sofri and Hasui and Nidlamed. That's what he said. And in the Beit Midrash, that comment was repeated. And by the way, please take a look, Rav Papa, 4th century in Bavel, student of Rava. What languages, what languages does Rav Papa talk at home? Aramaic. Aramaic. What, what language does Rav Papa talk in the Beit Midrash? Aramaic. And yet, what's this What's this uh, statement? It's Hebrew until the last word. Because Rav Papa is appending a formal statement onto the Mishnah. And that's why it's in Hebrew. Right? He's not adding it to the text of the Mishnah, but it's a formal uh, appendage to the, to the meaning of the Mishnah. So Rav Papa at some point said, the, the opening line of the Mishnah is talking about Sofrin Hasuyin Litlamed. And so now, a hundred years later, perhaps, in the baby Rav saying, Reisha B'mai, and say, oh, Rav Papa said that a while ago. We have that in our database. Okay? And now, Amar Ravashi. Now, it's important to know who these are relative to the early other Chachamim. Ravashi is two generations after Rav Papa in Bavel. Which is critical because Ravashi is going to comment on Rav Papa. You can't do that if you're earlier. So Ravashi says, Dekanami, meaning if you look carefully at the Mishnah, you can see the, the accuracy of Rapapa's read. Diktani sofrin makrin veloktani sofrin korin. Remember when we did the Mishnah, I talked about what makrin means as opposed to korin. Makrin means dictating. Korin means they're reading out loud. So he says, veloktani sofrin korin. It doesn't say the sofrim are reading, meaning... We would then think that a get was commissioned by Chaim for Susie, and they were reviewing the get, and then a guy walked in and said, oh, that's my name too, let me buy it. No, this is talking about a practice session. And that's critical because otherwise, case one and case two are no different. Right? Okay. And then Shmamina. So now the Gemara then concludes that Rav Papa's interpretation is the accurate one. It's talking about Sofrin Ha'asuyin, Lahit Lamed, meaning Sofrin, who are practicing the writing. This thing was not written as a get. It was written as a practice uh, writing exercise. All right, good. There.
All right. So now, my Yater Mikan. And again, back to the late Beit Midrash, they say, so what is Yater Mikan? Oh, Yoter Mikan, in our version of the Mishnah, what does that mean? Meaning, what's why is step two bigger than step one? So Tanadve Rabbi Ishmael. Notice, we're now going way back to the school of Rabbi Ishmael. And we have one of the Chachamim in the school of one of the unnamed Chachamim in the school of Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael is early second century. So now we suddenly find that we have a Tanaitic, a uh, quasi Tanaitic tradition explaining. Cases one, two, and three, and the uh, the Otermikain bridge between one and two and two and three. All right, and here's how it works. And and notice he's rewording it. That's all in Hebrew, and he's rewording the Mishnah as kind of like a shadow text of the Mishnah. You understand what I mean by shadow text? He's not trying to replace the Mishnah, but he's saying that this is kind of what's kicking in the Mishnah. This is the thinking behind it. So now the first case is. Not written as a get at all. Second case is written for a different couple. Third case is written for a different one of the guy's wives than the one he wants to give it to. All right, that's the cases. So here's how the Tanah of Ishmael rewords the thinking. Lozet, meaning not only this one. that was not written for the purpose of divorce at all. It was an, a writing exercise. This is the even the second case that was written for divorce is pasul, wrong couple. Velo says, And now notice how elegantly these statements work. He points to the weakness of the first case and the strength of the second case. And then, in true scaffolding uh, style, he points to the weakness of the second case and the strength of the third case. That's what Eotermikain is. You see why? So now, in the second case, it was not written for this guy. In the third case, it was written for the guy who was, in, who was eventually going to do the divorcing, just for a different wife. And now, third case, meaning not only this case, that it was not written, that it was written for divorcing this wife, sorry, for for divorcing one of his wives, even if it was written for him to divorce Susie, but it was wrought for the wrong Susie, it's Pasul. Which means now that we understand that the, the, the Gemara is beautifully justifying the structure of the Mishnah. And Bill, we can still come back to the question of well, case four would have cleaned, cleaned the house. You're right. But look how elegantly, based on this reconstruction by Rabbi Shmuel's Tan Rabbi Shmuel, the Mishnah builds a case. Not mm -hmm. only does it have to be written for purposes of a get, and not only does it have to be written for the purpose of the husband who's divorcing, it also has to be written for the purpose of that husband to that wife. And what we're doing is we're continually raising the raising and narrowing the scope of Lishma. 
not narrowing the scope of it, but narrowing the possibilities by raising the bar of lishma. And we're going to see why in a second. And so that's his reconstruction of the structure. So my Tama, what's the reason for all of this? And now, by the way, Tana Rabbi Shmuel is finished. Again, important to note, when you're looking at a Gemara, you're not looking at a written text. You're not looking at a composed text. You're looking at a, uh, a collection of transcriptions that are amazingly edited. I mean, profound, like amazing job of editing. And editing took maybe 100 years, took a long time to edit the text and lay on all different generations of comments in a way that's relatively seamless. It's so seamless that you need to actually be trained to know how to pull them apart, to see who's who. But at some point in your learning, you come to the point of saying, well, how can Abaye be talking to Ravashi? They weren't alive at the same time. How can Ravashi be talking to Rabbi Kiva? That's impossible. And then suddenly you realize what's going on. Okay, so now, my Tama, what's the reason that we place all of these demands? So, ikatav, and I put it in faint because it's what it's not written in the Torah. Ikatav and atan sefer kritut piada. If the Torah said, a guy gets married, and then he doesn't like his wife. And, uh, right, so then, if it said, venatan sefer kritut piada, he should put a sefer kritut in her hands and send her off. By the way, if that's what the Torah said, most of us, half Masachet Gittin wouldn't exist. Because all it means is that there's a thing called a Sefer Kritud. Go pick one up, put it in her hand. The composition, the signatures, the, the, the wording wouldn't matter. So if the Torah said, If the Torah said, I might think, that the only case accepted from that, EX accepted from that, would be case one. Because I'm a Sefer Kritut. It's a Sefer Ktivash El Sofrein. Right? You understand? Right? So therefore, uh, therefore, um, But if all it says is Benatan Sefer Kritut, then that means if Chaim writes a, a get for Susie, and Chaim changes his mind and finds another Chaim who's got a Susie, it should work because it's a Sefer Kritut. I was written forget. Right? So therefore, Katav Rachmana Vechatav. Therefore, the Torah says Vechatav Sefer Kritut, Venatan, not Venatan. Now, notice how elegantly this Kamara is going to explain the structure of the Mishnah and Torah Yishmael's reconstruction. It's great. Therefore, the Torah says Vechatav Sefer Kritut. Who's Vechatav? Who is that? Who's the subject of the chatav? Husband. 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 So therefore, the husband has to write a sefer kritut, which means it has to be written um, for him. Okay? Now, he can he can charge someone else with doing it, but it has to be his writing. Therefore, it says v'chatav to tell you that he has to write it, meaning the divorcing husband has to write it to commission it. Okay, therefore, if all it says then it would cut out case two. It wasn't written for him, it was written for a different couple. But if Chaim has two Susies, case three, then it's for Chatav. Chaim wrote it to divorce his wife. 
What do I care which wife it is? And again, it gets to the point, back to the point I made at the very beginning of this year. In Gitin, which is imbalanced, unlike Kedushin, which is very balanced, in Gitin, the main focus is, is on his intent and on his uh, desire to divorce her. Remember that Mi'ikar Hadin, I mean Midin HaGemara, a husband can give his wife a divorce without her consent. It's Rabbeinu Gershom who comes along and changes that. But until then, it can be done without her consent. But if Chayin has two Susies, then we have a Chatab. He wrote it for divorcing one of his wives. Therefore, Chatab Rachmana La Lishma. So now, what does the Torah say? And now we suddenly understand the insistence on the word la in the text. He has to write it for her. First of all, he has to be the one writing it, meaning it can't come from some other Chaim. And second of all, it's got to be for the Susie he's going to divorce. Okay, good. Which means, by the way, now case one, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm lapsing, lapsing waxing so rhapsodic about this, but what the Gemara has done is turned the Mishnah from a relatively uh, mild, apodictic series of statements into some elegant symphony. It's beautiful. Right? And and we've moved up, and we're, we're, we have two shadow texts. One shadow text is Tanah Mishma with the reasoning, and the other shadow text, which I had to call a shadow text, is Sefer Dvarim. It says, it doesn't say Venatan Sefer Kritut, it says Vechatav Sefer Kritut. If it said Natan Sefer Kritut, I would say it had it been written as a get, not as a writing exercise. Fine. It says Vechatav Sefer Kritut. Now I know he's got to write it, but if it just said Vechatav Sefer Kritut, I would think he could write it and then choose which wife to give it to. Therefore, it says Vechatav La Sefer Kritut. Then he has to write it for her. Okay, I get it. But if I only had that, I would not know the last case. And notice the wording of the Gemara. The Gemara is clearly seeing case four as not of a kind with one, two, and three. One, two, and three have a flow to them. And case four is like kind of not so different than case three. He wrote it for Susie without defining which one, and so later decides which one it is. Which is not that different than writing it for Susie A and then giving it to Susie Q. So the Seifalamali which means the Gemara is saying, I don't even need case four. Case four should flow from case three, obviously. So The answer is case four is teaching us the principle that you can't use brera, which would mean, topic of our, our shear, retroactive designation. Okay, beautiful. And that, by the way, launches us, and it'll also give brera from that line. And the fourth case is the one that gets all the attention. Because what happened? The guy said, I've got two Susies. I don't know which one I'm going to divorce. So just write Chaim divorces Susie. And tonight, I'll figure out which one I wanted. The answer is that doesn't work because ain't brera. Okay, so we're going to see one other component in the Gemara about this. But first, there's something uh, that I, you know, whenever you learn a sugya, you got to learn a sugya, and then you got to look at the Yerushalmi. You got to see what's happening here just throughout the time. And, and to say I was mildly surprised doesn't do justice. All right, here we go. Here is the passage in the Ushalmi. And by the way, typically passages in the Ushalmi will be significantly shorter than in the than in the Bavli. Not always, but typically. Here we go. Halacha. 
By the way, in, in many editions of the Yerushalmi, uh, the Mishnah isn't even there. The Mishnah is not written in there. It's just eh, that line and then the Gemara. Mahu Makrin. So remember the opening line of the Mishnah was Sofrin Makrin. Sofrin are dictating. So the answer is very simple. Remember, I asked you, what are Sofrin? You all said scribes, right? Because we've all learned in the Daf together. And we did this speech time. He said, Sofrina scribes. Well, no, Sofrina scribes. Yeah, not so, not necessarily. Mahu makrin, malamdei tinokot. What are malamdei tinokot? So here's an important thing about language. Language, as we know, grows, develops, and changes. So what a word means in Breshit doesn't necessarily mean it has the same meaning in Amos and Dibrayamim. And certainly not in Mishnah. And certainly not in the Rambam. And certainly not in modern Hebrew. Language changes. What's a tinok? Baby. Why is a tinok called a baby? Because the word yonek means nursing. So really a tinok is a nursing infant, right? However, in chazal, tinok means something very different. Tinok means a school kid, right? And if you don't believe me, check out the graffiti on almost any street in Measharim and Bnei Brak. Right, because the pasuk that you know from Divrei, I mean, y'all know it. Uvin uvin vi al tareu, you know it from Hodu, but Hodu is from Divrei, I mean, al tazayin. Uvin vi al tareu, don't act badly against my neviim. Elu tinokot shall bait rabban. Who's that? That's talking about school children. Tinokot shall bait rabban. Tashbar. Tashbar is a popular acronym. Tafshin bet reish. Tinokot shall bait rabban. And that's written anywhere that they want to protest against drafting yeshiva kids, right? So just let you know. When you see it, that's what it is. Anyways, um, so Tinok is throughout Chazal, in both Bavli and Shalmi, refers to school children, right? And so Malamde Tinokot means these are teachers in Cheder, as it were. And so what's the what's happening in the Cheder? The guy walks past and hears... The teacher is saying, okay, Chaim is the worst of it, and he's teaching the kids how a get would look. It's not a calligraphy lesson. And by the way, this isn't that different than the Bavli, and it does not our concern. Our main point is that the first case is not a real get. It's a uh, it's an academic piece. Not for academic purposes, not for get purposes. Okay, I just want to show you that it's not the same. That's as a launching pad for the next. Mikan. So the Yushami asked the same question the Bavli asked, which is, What's your term, Why is second case more than the first? The answer is the first one was not written for the purpose of a get. It was a learning exercise. But the second case where Chaim and Susie reconcile and Chaim gives it to another Chaim, it was written for, for a get. Okay, the same as a Bible. What's the third case? So Taman, so the Rishami quotes Bavel, says in Bavel, here's what they say. Then according to Tanarishma, right? The second case was not written for him or for her. But the third case was written for him, but not for her. It's the same Chaim. He just decided to give it to a different wife. So so what's the third case? Now this is the fourth case. Remember our Brera case? In our case, it was written, Lishma v'lishma. It was written for Chaim, and it was written for Susie. 
who he's going to give it to that later that night when she gives him bad dessert, right? The Susie he picked. And now, what what do you expect to see now? So, what's the justification for case four? Ain Brera, right? Look at the Yushalmi. Meaning, it wasn't written for her when it was first written. That's not the same as Brera. That's something else. That's saying, that's raising the stakes of Lishma, which, me, which means that now the four cases in the Mishnah really are fully scaffolded in the Yushalmi. First case, not written as a get at all. Second case, not written for him. Third case, not written for her. Fourth case, not written from her for her at the moment of writing. And the, and in this take, the all four cases are of a kind. Because remember, in the Bavli, what do we say? What's the Seifa? That's a different thing. That's great. And you tell me it's not a different thing. So I was kind of piqued by this and did a little search. And I found that the whole notion of Brera doesn't exist in the Yerushalmi. We're going to talk about this next week more, but it doesn't exist in the Yerushalmi. There's no Brera in the Yerushalmi. It's strange. They don't have the concept at all? So that's the question. That's the question, which would then mean that Brera, which is not unusual, that Brera is a Babylonian concept, a, a Moraic Babylonian concept. Which, of course, means then that, and this is not unusual, that means then that when we read a Mishnah or a Tosefta, and we we overlay on it the thinking of Brera as the reason for a particular halacha, that's our overlay, but that's not necessarily what they're thinking. That goes back to the first thing I said in the Shir, learning the Mishnah independently of the Bavli, and then learning the Bavli. All right, so just follow me for a minute. And then I'll bring us back back to where we are. So I did a little search, and I uh, I found that Brerad does show up one time in the Ushalmi. Let me show it to you. Um, it's right here in Ushalmi, and it's and it's in a sense the most fascinating masachet of the Ushalmi. Not really, but I'll tell you why I said that. And that is masachet Shkalim. Shkalim has a curious history. As you know, there are numerous masechtot that we have of Mishnah that there's no Bavli for. Like everything in Zraim except for Brachot. We don't have Bavli on Kilayim or Trumor or Chalar or any of that. We have Yushalmi on all of them. All of them. Uh, most of the halachot that we get that deal with mitzvot hatliot in one way or another have to reflect back to the Yushalmi. Right? We don't have... Um, Bavli also on Masechet Shkalim, which is in Moed. It's the only one in Moed that there's no Bavli for. But for reasons that are way beyond what we could talk about here, the Yerushalmi on Shkalim got printed with the Bavli. And you take your Bavli after all, you'll see Shkalim after Psachim in it, and it's the Yerushalmi. It's studied as part of the Dafyomi with the Yerushalmi. It's very strange. So take a look here. Here in the Yushalmi, it's talking about the, the Mishnah is talking about the different Kalim is about the donations to the Mikdash. It's talking about the how many different uh, boxes they had and how they were marked when you came in to make donations. And so in this particular passage, they didn't have a box for Kinim. That means you're donate, donating and people need their birds. Like uh, you let it, it's birds. So they didn't have it because of Tarovet. 
right? Shema tamut achatmi and rinsu dmei chataot meitot muravot bahen. And this is a complex problem in all Masachet Kinim's about, about what happens if you pick a pair and then one of them dies. You don't know, or the, the big case is the second pair where one of them flies off, you don't know which pair it belonged to. It becomes a huge mess, great math problem. But we have a Mishnah that says a woman who commits to give a cane can come and he put the money in and know that the coin's going to take care of it right away. The coin doesn't have to worry that there's money in there from inappropriate. So watch what the Rishalmi says. But you see the brackets? The brackets are in there. That's only talking about a case where we know the owners died and the chatat should be killed, and therefore the mixture is a problem. I'm not worried about the specifics of Allah higher. So why don't we just take any four zuzim out and dispose of them and say everything else is okay? And we'll say those four are the four that were given originally. The answer is Hamrin and Balma. What do we say? Rabbi Yehuda, late Lebrera. Rabbi Yehuda is the author of the statement, doesn't accept Brera. We're going to see that in a minute. This is the only place it shows up in the Yerushalmi. But notice it's in brackets. The brackets got me kind of concerned. So I went to Ketav Yad Leiden, which is the one manuscript we have of the Yerushalmi, which, which the Academia, um, which <laughs> Academia Lashon made a beautiful version of it. And you can see it right here. And as you can see, in their version of it, that statement is in small print in brackets. So I don't know why. So I decided to look at the original Ktav Yad Leiden. Here it is online. You could see it. That is the Leiden manuscript, the one manuscript we have of the whole Yerushalmi. Everything else we have is fragments. And it's not a great Ktav Yad. There's a lot of problems with it, but please take a look at it. The statement does not appear in the Yerushalmi. Where does it appear? It's a margin note. Now, who wrote the margin note? It could be the person who wrote the, who copied this. It could be somebody else wrote the margin note. It looks like different writing. But this entire thing is a margin note. What's a margin note? In addition. On... Yeah. So I'm going to tell you something here that might shock you a little bit. If you study Chumash, what is the commentary that you study with Chumash automatically? Rash. and... Chumash and? Oculus. What? Oculus? Uh, no, you're not studying with Oculus. You're reading with Oculus, maybe. Chumash and? Everybody, come on. Rashi. Chumash and Rashi, obviously, right? Now, it might surprise you to find that often when you're reading the commentary of Rashi, you're not reading Rashi. Meaning, you're reading Rashi, and in the middle of that Rashi, you may be reading Mahari Kara, you might be reading Rashbam, you might be reading... Rav Shmaya, you might be reading the comments of one or another of Rashi's students, because here's what happened. Rashi wrote, and I could show this to you, to you, Rashi wrote his Ketav Yad, his manuscript of his commentary, and then the manuscript circulated. In the meantime, his students might have written some margin notes of, you know, yeah. saying, well, in Shear, Rebbe said this, or I have another pr proposal. And then a later copyist, often what they did is they said, oh, you know who wrote that margin note? Rashi himself. Because Rashi realized afterwards he left something out. So in their copy, they put it in. And so it's it's mixed in. So take a look how that happens here. Here you have the most famous manuscript of the Bavli, and that is Munich 95. Munich 95 here, and by the way, just to show you what it looks like. 
you notice that the Mishnah is on the inside of the page and the Gemara is on the outside. There's no commentaries here. There's no Rashi Tosvot, right? Munich is 13th century, right? This is what it looks like, and this is the Gemara. Notice, here's the Gemara, which is the, the Rishalmi, because that's all we have in Shkalim. And notice what you have on the side. You have the same margin note. But watch what happened here. Here's the printed version. What happened to it? It got put into the text. Now, why does this happen? This happens because, remember, I started this year talking about how we are accustomed to reading the Mishnah through the eyes of the Bavli, right? That's how we're accustomed to reading it. So much so that I hopefully was successful tonight in taking a look and showing you how to look at the Mishnah independently. And then presto, when we opened up the Rishami, we found it had a different take than the Bavli on the Mishnah. One small difference, but then a whole big difference about the last case. So looking at the Mishnah independently is valuable. And the same thing, the Yushalmi suffers from this. Because the Yushalmi, again, through many, many centuries, was very weak. Meaning, in its in its attention, only one Ketav Yad, um, it, it didn't get nearly the attention of the Bavli, and there's good reasons for that. But the result of that was that most scholars coming to, to study Yushalmi were coming from the Bavli. Everybody was. Everybody who's studying Yerushalmi is coming from the Bavli, which means when they see a comment in the Yerushalmi, they automatically put the scales of the Bavli over their eyes to see it. I don't mean blindly. I mean, that's how the view... I don't want to say scales. That's not the word I want to use. I want They they look at it through the lens of the... of the. Uh, I see the Germans. I think lens. They look at it through the lens of the Bavli. Astigmatism, astigmatism at all, right? No, God forbid, but just the lens, right? And if you take a look in the classic commentaries on the on the Rishalmi, the Pnei Moshe, for instance, almost always reads the Sugya of Rishalmi through the lens of the Bavli. But that's not necessarily the case. So here's what happened, likely, is that the Rishalmi, somebody put in this margin note that was impacted by the Bavli, which included Brera. And Rabbi Yehuda's opinion about Brera, which we're going to see right now. And then what happened is it continued as a margin note until finally it came to print, and it got put in, and it became part of the text. So, in any case, that's just, I had to share that with you because I got so excited when I saw it, and I'm right now in conversation with, with the one of the world experts on the Musham to try to figure this out, and hopefully by next week I'll have something more to share with you. Um, in any case, this is this is the the, the background for that, that statement that Rabbi Yehuda does not accept Brera, and you're going to see how unyushalmi that is. Watch. We have a Mishnah in Demai, and this is a Mishnah that we employ in our sugya. So let's say you bought wine from the Kutim, which means that the wine needs to have Trumot Masro taken, and there's good reason to think they didn't do it, and it's Arab Shabbat. And so the case is right for Shabbat, you didn't get a chance to take Trumot Masro. You're not allowed to take Trumot Masro on Shabbat because it's called Tikkun Mana. You're fixing things, you're making them edible. And therefore, what do you do? Omer. Meaning, after Shabbat, I'm going to take two lugim. Let's say there's 100 lugim of wine here. I'm going to take two lugim out. That'll be truma. Now, remember, it's liquid. So it's all mixed together. Asara maser. Another 10 I'll take will you maser. And then tisha, because there will only be 89 left. So a tenth of that is nine. Maser sheni. Then you could drink. That's the Mishnah. Here's the Tosefta. 
That part's, by the way, not in our Gemara, and it really illuminates. You bought it Arab Shabbat, you didn't have a chance, you forgot to take Tumot to Masrot. Omer. That's our Mishnah, right? Divrei Rabbi Meir. That's our Meir's ruling. Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Rabbi Shimon Osrin. They say you can't do that. Okay? Now, why would Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosi, Rabbi Shimon say you can't do that? So as we will see next week, the Bavli assumes for a little while that they all reject Brera. Because this is a classic Brera case. I've got a hundred lug of wine. Where's the truma? Somewhere. Where's the maser? Somewhere. So you know what? I'll determine later by leaving it over. Whatever's left over, that'll be my truma and maser. And so the assumption is that Rameir says, yesh Brera, and Rabbi Yosef Shimon say, ain't Brera. Except that this Tosefta gives us a little more information. And that's the back conversation. Amrulo the Rabbeir. So his three colleagues said to him, by the way, this is the this is the first and foursome of the Mishnah. Any of you old Rams fans. Right? Rabbeir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shimon, the prize students of Rabbi Kiva. They are the core of the Mishnah. Amrulo the Rabbeir. So the, the three of them said to Rabbeir, Don't you agree that if the stem breaks off, Meaning, after you've done this, in the middle of Shabbos, the thing breaks and all the water, all the wine flows out, then that means retroactively you drank Tevel because you didn't separate Trumot to Masrot. And Amar Lahem, Machshi Baka. So Rameer said, okay, if it breaks, it breaks, but I'm not concerned it's going to break. Right? And that's something we're actually going to deal with a little bit later in, in our Dapim in the next couple of days. Okay, so what you see from here is that Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yosef Shimon do not allow this planned Trumot. And probably at a particular point says that the reason is because he holds in Brera. The Bavli, by the way, rejects that. However, take a look at this. In the Yerushalmi, which is we're focusing out of Demai, take a look at this. Tani, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon Osrin. Notice who's missing from you. Uh-huh. Rabbi Yehuda, because he was the author of the side note. Well, we don't know if he's the author of the side note, but the point is, in their right. version, Rabbi Yehuda is not part of this disagreement. Right. It's just Rabbi Yosef Shimon. And then, Osrin, Shemati Bakahanod. Right away, they go for the reason, which is, it might break. They had the Tosafta, and in their version of the Tosafta, Rabbi Yehuda wasn't there. And then the, 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 the Yushami says something really cool. Meaning that Rabbi Yossi's reason and Rabbi Shimon's reason are not the same. And then they go into the, the details, not our concern. Which means Rabbi Yossi prohibits it for one reason. Rabbi Shimon prohibits it for a different reason. Rabbi Yossi is not even in the, in the box here. But in the Bavli, Rabbi Yehuda is in the box as somebody who opposes it. And Rabbi Yehuda might therefore be one who says, and therefore this sneaks into the, to the Yushalmi as a marginal. Again, this is a bavli overlay onto the marginal, which means, again, in the Yushalmi, the whole issue of Brera is just not there. So I'm going to quickly summarize what we've done so far, part one, and uh, and then leave a couple minutes for questions. We did, as we started off, I gave an introduction to the issue of studying Mishnah independently. We studied our Mishnah, and we talked about our Mishnah 
independently and saw how it scaffolded and asked the question, why not just give case four and then case one, two, and three become obvious? And the truth is we weren't so satisfied with the answer I gave, which we shouldn't be. And then later we saw in the Bavli that the Tanarev Shmuel gave an elegant uh, explanation for how the text drives the each case of the Mishnah further. And so you're right, on a purely halachic level, the fourth case would have been enough. But to get the full scope of the idea of Lishma, the buildup is great. It's it's a really elegant kind of structure. And notice that the end of the of the Gemara kind of said, eh, fourth case. Like the first three cases are a lot of fun, I'm fun with it. Fourth case, eh, in Brira. That's the reason. Right, and then we saw that the Yushalmi had a different take on the fourth case of Ein Brera, and that led us to the whole discussion about the Yushalmi not having the concept of Brera at all, and the one example in the one case in Shkalim, and then the curious history of that case of how it started as a margin note and got somehow gotten in the text, but it's really a bodily inter interjection into the Yushalmi, and it seems to be foreign to the Yushalmi. Right. So that's what we looked at over the course of uh, of this uh, close to hour. Um, and again, I my goal in today's session was really to be more methodological and pedagogic than um, than research oriented, than EUN oriented. What we're going to do next week is going to do some thinking and more discussion among us about how Brayer works and why it works the way it does and what it means, and some of the more I wouldn't say that sort of philosophy of law kind of ideas uh, about it, but uh, today we've uh, we've looked at uh, the core texts of it. Uh, one text that we'll have to start with next week will be the next passage in the in the Bavli, which talks about Tolevadat Achrim and Tolevadat Atzmo, which is part of the 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 idea behind Brera of when I'm setting up options and are the options dependent on my own choice later, which is our case or dependent on things out of my control. And that immediately reminds us of what famous story in Tanakh. That's Yiftach, right? And you, you, one of the arguments you could use is that Yiftach didn't have to do anything to his daughter. He shouldn't have, didn't have to kill her had he said, which means, you know, well, whatever came by my house doesn't count because when I first said it, I didn't know what was going to come out. And so, you know, but that's something that we could, Perhaps deal with it at a different time. All right. Uh, <laughs>